Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to the Intentionally Inspirational Podcast. This podcast was created for entrepreneurs who are seeking motivation, digital marketing tips, personal development resources, and a nice dose of comic relief. Now for your host, Jason Wright. What is going on, everybody? Jason Wright here. Love that new intro music. Good stuff. I'm bringing you episode number 99 today, and I've got a great guest with me, and we will jump into that in a moment. But first first of all, I want to talk to you about... Funnel Vision 2.0. So I've just improved my free three-day video course that shows you email marketing automation and funnels. Always on the quest to improve. So just ran through this and um, improved the videos, improved the content, improved everything about it. If you want to check that out, it's at FunnelVisionCourse.com. And that is the sponsor for today's show. So today for kind of my little random stories that I share with you before I uh, we get into the, the conversation with the guests, I was actually listening to another podcast last week, and it was uh, Russell Brunson's Marketing Secrets podcast. And Russell Brunson, if you don't know, is the founder of ClickFunnels, obviously been uh, unbelievably successful with that company and what he's doing. It was interesting for me to hear about a guy that's literally made hundreds of millions of dollars that realized here recently that he didn't really have any goals. Like he'd kind of accomplished all his goals and never made the, the conscious decision to revisit those and kind of refocus, you know. He uh, he hired a coach and the coach was talking to him and they, they said, you know, what are you working towards now? And he's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, what are, you, what are you working towards? What's next? He's like, I have no idea. So what he figured out is he figured out for about a year and a half He's just been kind of doing more of the same. You know, I, I suppose once you reach a certain level of income, it's all kind of the same. I wouldn't know personally. I'm not there yet, but uh, maybe someday. And anyway, he said, you know, it, it's really been a struggle for him to figure that out. So as I'm listening to this, I'm starting to think about myself like, wait a minute. You know, a lot of people are probably in that boat, but let's talk about me for a second. It's like, what, what am I working towards at, at this point going forward? So we can use 2018 as a goal and actually look back at the goals that I write down every day. I've got away from that a little bit here lately. And I said, you know, I need to really rethink these and retarget and refocus because uh, I'm a person that kind of, I die on the vine without goals. If I'm not working towards something um, significant and concrete, I just uh, kind of lose my purpose and lose my way. So um, I share this with you for this reason. Uh, think about yourself. You know, do you still know what you're working for with clarity and, and not the big vision? Like I still have the big vision, but kind of, you know, what's keeping me reaching and grinding now? And I'm kind of in that mode anyway, but I need a bit more clarity with that. So figured I'd share that with you. Somebody else may hear that and say, you know what? I need to do that as well, or I'm doing that. So uh, hopefully somebody can benefit from that. Um, for this week's show, We've got an awesome guest. We've got Paul Moore joining us from Wellings Capital, and I'll introduce him here in a moment. But great conversation. Um, as I remember, challenging podcasts. This sucker, uh, for whatever reason, dropped on us a couple times. So uh, Stephen, my awesome sound guy, will make it so you can't even tell. But uh, neither Paul or I would give up, and we, we finally got it done. So good stuff there. Uh, let's check out what Paul and I talked about now. 
What's happening, everybody? I've got another great guest with me this week. I've got Paul Moore from Wellings Capital. Let me tell you what I know about Paul. Paul is obviously an entrepreneur. He's an author. He's a podcast host as well. He's a real estate investor, and he's a former finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year, two years in a row. He's appeared on HGTV's House Hunters as well. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Well, I've read about your journey a little bit. I think it's very, very interesting, but the audience has not heard that. Would you mind sharing your journey into entrepreneurship with us? Oh, yeah, you bet. So when I was a kid, I was always the, the guy who was, I don't, I think it was maybe a little lack of common sense and a little bit of drivenness, but I would be like the kid walking through the neighborhood selling school raffle tickets or candy or whatever in the rain or in the <laughs> snow. And it was, people would be like, you're kidding. And, and like, I don't think I even noticed it was raining or that that was unusual till some lady was like, I'm going to buy a whole bunch from you because you're working so hard. I'm like, so I was always this driven kid, always trying to get good grades, pretty good kid overall. But I got into, uh, I went through engineering school and then I got an MBA. And while I was doing that, I actually went to work for an entrepreneurial a startup company in Columbus, Ohio. I was at Ohio State. And um, the uh, this company made Ghostbusters mouthwash and toothpaste. And uh, it was a big hit, let me tell you. But uh, no, in all seriousness, it uh, it was a lot of fun being part of a startup. And I never experienced anything like that. It was also frustrating. I had to wear a lot of hats, you know, even though I was only an intern. But when I went to Ford Motor Company, I found that I got bored pretty quickly. It was a great job, great pay, amazing benefits. But I looked at people who were doing, you know, working there 20 years, 30 years, even more, and they didn't seem real happy. In fact, the people with the easiest jobs seemed the unhappiest. And I started looking for entrepreneurial opportunities literally months after I got to Ford, even though I liked it. And it took me about five years to finally find something I wanted to do and make the exit. And I've rarely, if ever, regretted it, even though I'd be coming up on my 30 years if I would have stayed at Ford. And I sometimes wonder what it would have been like to retire from there. But I overall, I would never regret the journey I've been on. Very nice. So what was the opportunity that you went into right out of Ford? So one another guy I went through Ohio State with um, had quit Ford about four years before I did. I was in my fifth uh, year almost by then, and um, he went and started a staffing company, which was also known as a PEO, a professional employer organization. That's where we we centralized the human resource and administration and payroll functions for a lot of different small companies. So we would go into a small company, and the way it worked, Jason, we would hire you. You as the owner, we would hire your assistant, we'd hire all your staff, all your engineers, all the janitors, everybody, let's say, you know, between five and 50 employees typically. We put them all on our payroll and then we would quote unquote lease them all back, lease you back to your own company. And that means your company only had one check you had to cut every pay period um, for payroll workers' comp, unemployment, benefits, uh, tax deposits, everything was handled uh, through us. And plus, we gave the employees and the owners great benefits, you know, access to a 401k and uh, disability and life insurance and things that <clears throat> a lot of small companies couldn't provide. So, we did that for about five years. Wall Street uh, 
got really excited about our industry for some reason in 1996 and seven, and uh, valuations went through the roof. And thankfully, we were able to sell our company right in the middle of that uh, that crazy run up. Oh, excellent! Very nice. So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit now, and this is where it gets exciting for me. I become the go from the host and become the the member of the audience. Uh, talk to me about the advantages to multifamily investing over other real estate options. Well, thanks for asking. That's um, um, I. So I did single family flip homes for a number of years. Did about sixty or seventy of those with a partner. Wow. Um, and uh, then I actually developed a, a small subdivision. Uh, Built, actually flipped a whole bunch of waterfront lots, probably 20 or 30 waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. It's a beautiful place. And um, then we did a multifamily facility and a hotel. And during that time, we realized uh, there are incredible advantages to multifamily. Basically, the demographic shift in the U.S. is, as you've probably heard, away from owning homes and toward uh, renting in general. There is a, there's a whole lot of reasons for that, but a, a couple quick ones is, number one, uh, the government tampered with the mortgage uh, rules back in 1995, and single-family homeownership rose from its history historical average of 62 to 64%, up to above 69%. And then when the bubble burst, starting in late 2005, actually, um, the uh, a lot of people lost their homes, and uh, home ownership went down from 69 back to 63%. Well, each percent drop represents about a million new renters into the system. And during the recession, a lot of multifamily wasn't built, just like other homes weren't built and other properties weren't developed. And so there became a pretty significant shortage. So we found that uh, multifamily rents actually continued to rise during the recession while almost everything else was falling. That does not a guarantee that would always happen, <clears throat> but that's what happened during that period. And what we're finding is millennials, uh, which is the largest group of people in America, it's about 80 million strong. They generally, for a lot of reasons, for flexibility and uh, a lot of other reasons, they don't want to. Uh, often be tied down to a home, even if they could. Their student debt load is causing uh, a lot of people not to be able to buy. Another issue is um, a lot of older Americans uh, in my age range, baby boomers, are choosing to rent again over owning. And um, also, a lot of immigrants are uh, in a position where they need to rent. So, renting is really becoming very popular and I don't know Jason we may be in a position someday where we're like Germany with you know over 50% of people renting I don't know if that'll ever happen but it could it's happened in some cities already well that's a great opportunity for people on the investing side it really is. And the problem is, a lot of people have recognized this. So, um, from Indianapolis to Dallas to San Francisco to Boston, people are gobbling up all the multifamily they can. So, it makes it a very difficult situation to uh, invest in these type of things. But if you can get your hands on a good performing property, it has really performed very, very well since about 2011 and even before that. Very, very nice. Well, it's interesting what you say. I'm, I, you know, I hear, um, I hear talk about millennials all the time, and I'm actually the oldest. You know, depending on who you ask, I'm the oldest in that group. I'm 1981, so I'm right on that line. But it's funny. I'm kind of a hybrid. Like I embrace some of the traditional millennial thoughts, but 
I was influenced heavily by baby boomers growing up as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that minority that would rather own a home and, um, you know, do some things, but it's interesting. It's very interesting. And everything that you just said there makes a ton of sense. So really, really, really cool stuff. So this is a big one here. You know, I know a lot of startups, um, understand the benefits to passive income. They understand, they should understand you got to work hard, hard, hard up front in order to enjoy that passive in income stream later. And, you know, and real estate comes up a lot. What are some of the most common misunderstandings with real estate investing? I think one is that you have to be your own property manager. I've got a uh, a friend, the guy I flipped most of those 60 homes with, and he, even though he um, uh, was only had a few rental homes at the beginning, he began to use a proper a third property third-party property manager immediately. And that might not make sense to somebody who has one or two single-family homes or a few duplexes, but it does make total sense because the relationship you have with that renter, especially if you're a nice person, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. Jason, since this podcast called, uh, I only have one tenant in a small home, but since this podcast started, I've already got a call from that tenant, and I know what they're going to say. They're going to leave me a three- to four-minute voicemail explaining how they need money to pay their rent this month, how they, uh, they're they sorry that they're four days late already, and can I, have a, can I give them a break because their husband's sick, the, the bathtub needs fixed, and they need to go to vacation to Myrtle Beach. I mean, I guarantee that's what the topic <laughs> of that call was. And it's very, very hard because I've become friends with these people. They've rented from me for 14 years. And um, so it's very, very hard, whether you have a hundred unit complex or a duplex, to interact directly with people uh, and have a friendship, which I want to have with people. I want to be a kind person, and I am, but also have a business relationship. It's very much better to have a third party property manager in the middle. That's one of the biggest misconceptions that I want to uh, disperse. I'm telling you that people should go ahead and spend the five or six or eight percent to have have the property manager be in that role. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you you it makes it difficult to to run your business and do it when you you have to have emotion tied into it. You know, it totally makes sense to have that buffer. Um, let me ask you this: so, what are three steps that startup entrepreneurs can take towards acquiring their first multifamily property? So. If somebody listening or even me, you know, if we're interested in, in, you know, trying to work towards that, what is your, uh, you know, what are the steps we should take to do so? Well, there, it's statistically and mathematically provable that it is uh, worthwhile, even though I really don't like debt, uh, it's worthwhile to uh, not have lazy equity sitting around. So, the first thing I would do is evaluate all your sources of lazy equity, and that would be if you have a $300,000 house and your mortgage is paid down to $50,000. Well, it's great that you have $250,000 in equity, but your only your only return is the opportunity uh, cost there of not having a mortgage, meaning that if your if your mortgage would be at four percent, your effective return on that cash is four percent. If you cash, uh, if you evaluate the possibility of safely getting some of that lazy equity out and investing that, that would be the first step. The second step in my mind would be um, looking to 
deciding whether you want to be part of a large group, throw your money in with uh, a professional syndicator, a professional um, asset manager, or doing it on your own. I've seen people do it on their own where they, they buy a duplex and then maybe they trade up to a fourplex and they maybe fix that up, raise the rent, sell that and get an eightplex. Often they get really frustrated. Like I said before, if you're trying to be a property manager, you will be frustrated. But um, Or deciding to go with a syndicator, which is where you would just take, let's say, fifty or $100,000, invest it with a professional professional who's already doing this, and they've got all the systems in place, all the paperwork in place, all the legal stuff in place. They already have a property manager and uh, going with them. So, I would say that would be the, the second step. And then, depending on what you decide there, you go and do a serious amount of due diligence, whether you pick option A or B on step two. Step three would be a serious amount of due diligence on the um, the property manager, if, if you're going it alone, or the asset manager if you're going with a syndicator and really ask all the hard questions, do the criminal background checks, check the neighborhood. And you know, there's a, a song that came out before your time or mine from Simon and Garfunkel called the Bo- the Boxer. And Paul Simon said, you know, everyone believes, every man believes what he wants to believe and disregards the rest. And it's really, really important for entrepreneurs in general and investors specifically, don't do that. Another way of saying that is don't fall in love with a project, a company, or a property, because if you fall in love, uh, you will start to ignore the bad news and the bad information and the negative information, and you'll start to embrace only what makes your case. And if you do that, you will get in big, big trouble. And that's the biggest lesson I think I've learned as an entrepreneur over the decades. Man, that's, uh, that's powerful. That's real powerful, because when you were saying that, I was just kind of thinking of some some projects, we'll call it, that I focused on for months and months and months. And then at some point, I don't know if my wife or somebody said, hey, like this thing here that you're focused on, like it's not working. Like this isn't, you need to, you need to refocus. So you're right. You can get so emotionally attached to things that, you know, you're bound to determine to make it work. But then you start asking, is this really, is this really the best thing for my target customer or client? Is this really something they want or need, you know? So right. it's great advice. Let me ask you this. You've been through quite a few opportunities and been doing entrepreneurship for a while. What is the one scariest time you've had as an entrepreneur if you had to pick one? I think it's uh, in late 2007. I, I had, uh, we, like I said, we sold our company to a publicly traded firm in 1997. Ten years, so we, I, I had about two million dollars in the bank at that point, and we moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains. We wanted to raise our kids in more of a, a rural environment, and uh, we homeschooled our kids. Had a lot of fun with them over the years. But ten years later, I found myself not with two million dollars in the bank, but two and a half million dollars in debt, and. Fortunately, and this isn't one of the reasons I love real estate, is all the debt was on hard assets. It wasn't involved in some, you know, tech stock or some startup that was about to to go up in flames. I've had a few of those myself. But this in this case, it was all tied up in waterfront lots, uh, another waterfront property, uh, other hard assets. So the scariest thing about it was that we did not know, you know, how we would get out of that hole. And I actually Looked. I was reading a book about a guy named George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was a pastor, and he founded a number of orphanages uh, in Bristol, England, in the 1800s. And these orphanages, they they didn't 
actually um, publish any of their needs at all. They didn't publish what their financial needs were, their physical needs. They basically counted on the fact that if God was going to give them this mission of saving orphans off the street, that he would also provide for them. So he had a really radical approach. And no matter what you believe, I mean, this was a really radical guy. And he also had this really, really uh, profound sense of, of calm and trust even when horrible things were happening. For example, they would sit down to breakfast with like, let's say a thousand orphans and they didn't have any food at all in the whole place. And they would just say grace and sit there. And then all of a sudden there'd be a knock at the door and the milk truck broke down right outside their door and uh, would provide milk for all the orphans. And then literally like 20 minutes later, I think uh, a bread wagon showed up and said that they had been up all night baking bread for the orphans. They just thought that they needed to do that. So I thought, what would George Mueller do if he was in my situation? And I thought, well, he probably wouldn't have been in debt in the first place, but what he would have probably done is given his way out of debt. And I thought that was a pretty crazy thing to do. But I, st I told my family and friends, we were just going to start giving to a lot of the charities and, and the church we were involved in. And we just would, would begin to just give generously and really believe that something really good would happen. And so we started that January 1st, 2008. The recession was hitting real hard at that point. And um, we we began to give. And three or four weeks later, I ran into a real estate developer at a Subway restaurant. And I told him a little bit about my situation. He goes, oh, you ought to do this. And this offhanded little comment he made spurred a lot of other ideas. And I ended up in front of the Planning and Zoning Commission about two days later, actually the, the administrator, and told them my idea. And it was really radical. It was completely turning the law on its head to actually divide, subdivide a bunch of lots I had that were not otherwise able to be divided. And this lady looked at me over her glasses. She goes, I can't believe you used our law to completely turn it around and do exactly what the law was supposed to limit. And she said, but you're absolutely right. You can do this. And so we subdivided those lots. 13 months later, after starting to give a set weekly amount, which was very painful to give, we were completely debt-free, Jason. And a uh, pretty amazing story and something my kids will never forget, trust me, nor will I. Oh, man, that's good. That is that is good stuff. You know what's funny about your, your Subway restaurant comment? I was talking to my son, my oldest yesterday, he's 11, and I was telling him, I don't know what we were talking about, but I said, Ethan, you have no idea what tomorrow holds or even I said don't even wait till tomorrow you have no idea what that next conversation holds it could be at the gas station it could be at the restaurant I said the power of connecting with people is so much bigger and stronger than we could ever imagine you just you never have any idea so for that reason don't ever give up with anything always keep going because as soon as you pull the plug on something it doesn't matter if that next big break was five minutes away or around the corner you'll never know so kind of ironic that you bring that up today. So very, very cool it, story. It's it's absolutely true. And tell Ethan, you never know who is going to have knowledge or who is going to have money. I run into investors. I talk to potential investors almost every day. And I'll talk to some who, like this lady called me and she was just like, yeah, I work at a social worker job and I'm here in California and I'm really trying to help 
street people in LA and I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, Oh, it's great to talk to you. You're really sweet and everything, but I'm not sure why you called. And then toward the end of the call, she goes, Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, I just inherited $2 million from my dad and I'm trying to figure out where to invest it. So you never know who has money or who has knowledge that you really need. Absolutely. And I'm sure you hear the other scenario quite a bit too, where people act like they have money, then they actually have none. Right. It's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is next for you, Paul, uh, with Willings Capital and, and otherwise? So, Jason, um, I'm sure your audience is familiar with it, but um, some might not be. Uh, there was a company that started thir uh, 11 years ago called Tom's Shoes. Now, Tom's Shoes made a big splash, and they were actually in the LA Times, uh, and they were picked up by a lot of famous department stores uh, within months after they started because the founder decided that every time you buy a pair of Tom's Shoes, the company will take money out of their profits, and they will buy and provide a pair of shoes to a uh, an orphan or a needy person in a third world country. And so they started doing this. So when you buy a pair of Tom's shoes, they're a little pricey for what they are. But um, you can know that Tom's shoes is going to donate a pair of shoes to a child in a third world country. Now, you don't have to share your shoes with that child, obviously. But you don't get to pick what country or what child those go to. Wellings Capital is dedicating ourselves, we want to see the end of human trafficking. Um, I don't know if you, how much you've heard about this, Jason, but human trafficking's revenue is great. Get this. If you take the record profits, the record profits from Apple and Starbucks and General Motors and Nike, take their record year profits, double that number, uh, that is about half of the annual revenue what they believe is being brought up, brought in around the world through human trafficking. It's a horrible thing. And um, if, you, um, um, if you took the total population of Virginia and our neighboring state, Pennsylvania, uh, the number of people trafficked in the world is greater than that, 21 million, they, they estimate. So, I hate this. Um, my own family was uh, impacted by this type of thing once. And so, <clears throat> I am... We want to tell investors that if you hate this too, and if you want to invest in this, uh, you can invest with our company. The investor will get all their return, just like the Tom's Shoes buyer gets their pair of shoes, and they don't have to share any money, not even a penny, to, to stop human trafficking. But what we're going to do is we're going to take money out of our profits that are linked to that investment, and we're going to donate that in a big way to thwarting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. And we've already got some organizations we're working with to do that. So, that's what Wellings Capital is really excited about right now, Jason. Wow, that's really, really powerful, man. Usually when I ask that question, it's like somebody's working on an ebook or something. But no, that is, that's world changing. And I had no idea there was that much of that going on when you start talking about dollar amounts. That's insane. It's so yeah. sad because it's it's so horrible. I can't imagine uh, you know losing a family member to that at all. So, mm -hmm. well, if somebody listening would love to get in contact with you, Paul, and I don't know why they wouldn't, what's the best way for them to do so? They can reach out to us at our website. It's Wellings, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S. That's wellingscapital.com. And they can reach out to us there. And they can also buy my book. It's called The Perfect Investment. 
and kind of a crazy title, huh? And that's on Amazon. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate your patience with uh, <laughs> with Skype today. It's been interesting. Yeah, it has. But Jason's really been great, and I really, really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you. And it's been an honor to speak to your audience today. All right. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Take care. All right. We are back to the show. We are back. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for your time. And uh, your story is awesome. And you've done some really cool things. And I believe you will continue to do so. So very good. Next week, guys, episode number 100 finally comes out. And at the beginning of that, when I think I'm going to do kind of some reflections on the first 100 episodes, um, I listened the other day. I got brave and I listened back to episode number 100. And sound quality, and I was just kind of a confused guy playing with a microphone. It's just so funny to see where I was and um, kind of do some reflections on those first 100 episodes and then predictions for the next 100. It'll be interesting to see uh, where, where we end up after that. But check that out. Uh, we've had some real memorable guests and uh, some really neat um, moments in time during you know during the show. So uh, thanks for your ear this week. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week to check out that episode number 100, and we will talk to you then. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to Intentionally Inspirational. You can keep up with all of our new episodes on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We look forward to having you join us again next week for another great episode.